Heavenly Father, just thank you for bringing each and every one of us here today. We pray that we would be doers of your word and not just hearers of your word, that the Holy Spirit would be working in each and every one of us to bear the fruits of the Spirit in our lives, that we would look to you and as we worship you, that we would become more like you in our patience, gentleness, and kindness. Lord, I pray that you would convict us today, but also encourage us, encourage us to persevere with patience. In your name we pray, amen. Patience is a virtue that we tend to admire from afar. The closer it comes to us, however, the more it invades our schedules, our plans, our comfort, the more uncomfortable it becomes. Patience only exists in a world of disruption, delays, and disappointments. This means that we cannot practice patience unless our circumstances calls for it. And the circumstances that call for it are frequently not what we would choose. We would choose convenience, speed, efficiency, fulfillment. But God often chooses circumstances that call for patience in our lives. Are you a patient person? Many could tell you that the quickest way to find out is to pray for patience. So we're all gonna have a great week. Um, because it is that day or week where nothing is going to go the way you planned it. There are going to be interruptions, disputes, where you are asked to put aside your own preferences for someone else's. Are you a patient person? Let me put it another way. Do you demand that things be done in your way and on your timetable? I never thought of myself as a particularly impatient person, but if you'd asked me that latter question, it would have been an undisputed yes. I was considered particular, precise, exacting of standards, controlling of projects, unyielding in deadlines. Looking back, I can clearly see that I was impatient. That impatience meant that I was frequently frustrated. That seems like such a nice sanitized word frustrated, but it was my desire for things to get done faster, exasperation with others who didn't fall in line with my plans. And the reality is that frustration was a cover for my desire to control the world around me. It made me unpleasant to be around. The one you would want to avoid. 
And this is probably one of the fruits of the Spirit that I've seen the most change in my life since becoming a Christian. That by the grace of God, he has changed some, not all, of that frustration to trust in him. To recognize that God is God and I am not. He is limitless. I am limited. I still need reminders, but it's much easier now. And I want to encourage you today that if you find yourself frequently frustrated and impatient, that by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, you can grow in patience. Impatience grows out of our unwillingness to trust and submit to God's timing in our lives. Impatience is that war of control. Patience, on the other hand, springs from very different soil. It is a humble embrace of what we do not know and cannot control from a deep and abiding trust that God will follow through on all of his promises from a heart that is happy to have him and rest in him. In other words, the deepest patience comes from a humble and hopeful joy in God above all else. And that really means that real patience is not only inconvenient and difficult, but humanly speaking, impossible. The kind of patience that honors God is so hard that we cannot practice it without help from God. It grows where the spirit lives. And I point this out because there is a different kind of patience that comes from indifference, apathy, and simply not caring about the outcome. There is also patience born of waiting for future gain, knowing that, you know, if we just wait a little longer, you know, that investment will grow. And that's not what we're talking about today. R.C. Sproul said that when the Bible speaks of patience, particularly as one of the fruits of the Spirit and as one of the characteristics of love, it speaks as if it is a virtue that goes far beyond the mere ability to wait for some future gain. It involves more than the rest or peace of the soul that trusts in God's perfect timing. The patience that is in view here focuses more on interpersonal relationships with other people. It is the patience of long-suffering and of forbearing in the midst of personal injury. This is the most difficult patience of all." End quote. As we think about interpersonal relationships with patients, I want to look at 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. The way we approach each of these groups, the idle, the faint-hearted, the weak, are going to be different, but we're called to be patient with them all, which means we're likely to be tempted to be impatient with them all. So what might patience look like in each of those cases? 
first, let's look at helping the weak. The weak test our patients because they need more from us than most. Many of us have an impulse, at least at first, to step into the moment when you see weakness and someone in need. Whether that person is young or old, immature, the weakness, though, is rarely confined to in that moment help. It means that the weak need for the long haul help. And for the long haul help requires patience. A parent knows that an infant is weak and needs support, but it can be forgotten in the heat of a moment with that preteen who's rebellious. You may have been excited to encourage a new believer in their walk, but as the weeks, months, and even years pass by, you can begin to wonder, will they ever grow up? When will it be done? Paul charges the church to help the weak. And the word help here can also mean to hold firm or be devoted to. There's a tenaciousness in this help. There's a clinging to the weak, even after months or years of inconvenience and support. And where does that patience come from? Romans 5, 6 says that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. We're the weak. Again, in 1 Corinthians 127, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That's us, the weak. Those who know how painfully and helplessly weak we are apart from God are more ready to endure the weaknesses of others. Not resenting when it's the 10th or even 100th time because they gladly trust and submit to God's plan, including the weaknesses that he has placed around us and even in us. Second is encouraging the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted test our patience because they are more easily discouraged than most. Among the Thessalonians, some were grieved by the loss of loved ones in chapter 4 and 5. Discouragement was drying up their spiritual strength and resolve. They needed more from others, those around them, that were also likely grieving themselves. The faint-hearted bring burdens that they cannot carry by themselves, and they often despair of their burdens, struggling to see how life can be more bearable in the future. And we all have our own burdens to bear. So regularly taking time to speak grace into someone else's life and spiritual needs can feel taxing over time. And the ministry of encouragement often requires endurance. But those who keep walking with the faint-hearted, even when the path is slow and winding, 
demonstrate the strength of supernatural patience. They have discovered, first for themselves and then for others, what Isaiah 40 says, God gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Where does that strength come from? That supernatural patience from the Lord. And Pastor Gavin preached on James 5 recently, and it is such a good text on patience that we're going to spend some time here. Um, and for many of you, this will be a reminder. But James 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of, this, in the, name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. First, Pastor Gavin talked out patience grows by keeping Christ's coming in view. The faint-hearted can grow weary, weighted down in the moment. But we can look back to the first advent in Christ and have that assurance of our salvation that the work was done on the cross. That even as we wait, our salvation is not going to change in that waiting. We can also look forward to the second coming of Christ, to the promises that we have of being in his presence and being glorified with him and in him. And therefore, when we grow faint-hearted in the moment, in the present, by our circumstances, we can be reminded of our union with Christ through the Holy Spirit today. And therefore, we are not relying on our own strength to be patient, but praying for the strength that God supplies, that he would give us patience, that he would give us endurance, that he would give us perseverance, because he is with us. Delayed gratification, as we think of the promises of God and that second coming, only makes sense when we remember the already and the not yet, that first and second coming of Christ. Second, I want to point out the farmer who waits for the harvest. And for the farmers in the room, you know that over the last three summers, it has been dry, they're still waiting. And yet, we're called to wait with hope in the midst of drought, knowing that all droughts will pass eventually. And those who grow weary are encouraged 
by the small amounts of rain that are not sufficient in and of themselves, but hint at the promise of future rains that will be sufficient. And third, we have the example of Job. Job initially blesses the name of the Lord after hearing the terrible news of the loss of his children and falls on his face and worships the Lord. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And even after being afflicted with boils, he says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? But after his three friends come and sit in silence with him for seven days, they start a conversation. And this conversation centers around the question, can God be both just and allow the righteous to suffer? Job is looking for a satisfactory explanation for his situation. He wants to know why. But he soon grows faint-hearted and despairs. And he even asks, would it have been better not to be born if we are just to be born to suffer? And the friends, like Job, assume God is just, but they come to a different conclusion. They conclude that if God is just and Job has suffered, therefore, Job must have sinned and this must be God's just punishment and discipline on him. Ladies, it is easy to become one of Job's well-meaning friends, to become impatient with the faint-hearted who are grieving and still grieving. You see, it's not that this is completely devoid of theological grounding. In Lamentations 1 and 2, it is a lament about the fact that the three-year siege of Jerusalem and the destroying of the temple and the city was God's just punishment for the sins of Judah, who had broken covenant with the Lord and had not come back after he had sent many prophets to preach truth to them, to call for repentance. So it's not that it's never the case that sin results in discipline, but it can be very easy to jump to the first theological thing you think about and say, that must be it. Instead of sitting with someone, not just for seven days, but for the long haul and understand their specific context and situation and Bear those burdens with them. The problem is Job's friends were impatient and are just putting forward that first solution they can think of. So are we willing to sit with someone for the long haul in their suffering? To persevere in encouraging someone who is faint-hearted, discouraged, and depressed? Job eventually demands an answer from God himself. And God responds with this beautiful, sweeping view of creation and all its intricate complexities and how it works together that we in our human limitedness do not understand. 
And Job expresses one of the most sweeping and powerful statements of God's providence in the Bible when he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purposes of yours can be thwarted. It is a recognition, a recognition that the creation is so complex and that exercising justice is impossible for those of us who are limited in knowledge and unable to steer the course of history. We're going to later see that God's justice frequently unfolds over long periods of time, decades, and even centuries. The history books in the Old Testament give God's perspective on history and how things work together, but are frequently missed from a human perspective. We want justice now, in the moment. And that's not how God's justice works. His justice, like creation, is more complex than that. James says the lesson in providence from the book of Job is the foundation for patience in our life. Although Job questioned God, he's praised for his patience in that he kept praising the Lord in all circumstances. The main point is that we can continue to praise God in all of our circumstances as he has shown to be merciful and compassionate. And before there's a restoration of Job, he's asked to pray and intercede for his friends. And he becomes a loving example of patience extended towards those who persecuted him. Anyone who has experienced the gift and renewal of that coming out of a faint-hearted, depressed, and dark place longs for others to experience it as well. And how much sweeter it is when God strengthens and renews someone through us. Every Christian experiences discouragement at times, and every Christian needs a steady stream of encouragement to endure suffering, reject temptation, and to embrace the way that we're called to trust and obey the Lord. And when those streams of encouragement run low or even dry in churches, when we lack the patience needed to persevere in encouraging one another, we all are less off for it. And so how can we persevere in encouraging the faint-hearted? The third is rebuking the idol. It's not hard to see how the idol tests our patience. In the case of the Thessalonians, it seems that though Jesus, they thought that Jesus was returning imminently. And so they started to shirk their work and leaving it to others. The idol test our patience because they refuse to take responsibility and initiative. They could do more, they could help more, carry more, contribute, but they're just doing enough or less which means someone else is doing more. We all know the person who jumps in and helps and the one who has selective hearing. And even as a bystander, we can grow impatient with them. But Paul doesn't let the impatient off the hook, even for the idol. He says, admonish them, warn them, 
exhort them, wake them up. Jody was mentioning, she's praying for those in other churches that they would be woken up. And Paul says, even if you have to withhold food for a time or remove them from fellowship, nevertheless, he says, do these things with patience. Be patient with them all. We don't usually associate harsh words or painful consequences with patience. So we might ask, how do we be patient when admonishing the idol? We're patient with sinners because in part, we still are one. The idleness of others or take any sin, whether it's greed, lust, anger, vanity, is never so evil that we cannot see something of their sin in ourselves. It takes very little imagination for us to see that apart from the undeserved miracle of salvation, we could be like them or far worse. Impatience with sinners betrays a small view of God's mercy towards us. The same apostle that says we should rebuke the idol also says in 1 Timothy 1, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Our rebukes must be seasoned with a humble awareness of our own sinfulness, of just how wicked we could be without the grace of God. So we are patient even with those who need to be rebuked. And how do we do this? First, we need to recognize that a good rebuke in and of itself is evidence of patience. It is so easy to give up on sinners, to walk away from the relationship, just ghost them. That's our culture. It's uncomfortable, it's inconvenient. Drop it. Those who rebuke well who aim to restore someone through the honest and gentle confrontation and correction, demonstrate they haven't given up. And that they still have hope that God would grant conviction, forgiveness, reconciliation, and transformation in that person's life. Patience in rebuke, though, means there has to be a willingness to wait for change. Sanctification can be excruciatingly slow at times. We don't expect children to mature overnight, and we shouldn't expect the slothful to become diligent overnight, or for the proud to become immediately humble, or the angry to become kind, or the lustful to be immediately pure. We don't overlook patterns of sin in those we love or make excuses for their sin, but we're to go to them, to warn them, to implore them, 
to rebuke them if necessary, and we're to keep doing so, knowing firsthand that change can come slowly. But we plant seeds knowing that they need time to take root, to grow, mature, and eventually blossom. Al Mohler said, the Bible's understanding of patience as a Christian virtue is rooted in the totality of Christian truth. Patience begins with the affirmation that God is sovereign and in control of human history, working in human lives with eternity on the horizon. Time takes on an entirely new significance. The Christian understands that full satisfaction will never be achieved in this life but he looks to the consummation of all things in the age to come. Furthermore, we know that our sanctification will be incomplete in this life, and thus Christians must look to each other as fellow sinners saved by grace in whom the Holy Spirit is at work, calling us to Christ-likeness." End quote. Our impatience of wanting things done in our way and on our timetable is mortified in the flesh when we see and savor the providence of God, trusting in his timing and work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those around us as he convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That doesn't mean we do nothing. In fact, we've seen that in this verse, we're very active. We're admonishing, we're encouraging, we're rebuking. As we wrap up, I wanna share three applications and a short story. So the first application is learn to lament in seasons of waiting. Some of you are in seasons of waiting and seasons of longing as the seasons of life have not progressed in the way that you thought they would. And it can be discouraging. Patience is not about necessarily patience with others, but patience with a situation or a season that you find yourself in for a prolonged period of time. Lament is designed to express our complaints in a way that leads to remembrance of God's promises and trust in him. Complaints that simply vent are murmuring, like the Israelites in the wilderness, and we want to avoid that sin of unbelief. But biblical lament gives those who are waiting a way to express their pain in a Godward way that turns to him, trusts in him, and rests in his promises. Mark Vogrup, in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, says, lament allows us to embrace an endurance that is not passive. Lament helps us to practice active patience. Trust looks like talking to God, sharing our complaints, seeking God's help, and then recommitting ourselves to belief in who God is and what he has done, even as the trial continues. Lament is how we endure. It is how we wait, end quote. Lament is not something that we see practiced often today. And his book, this one, 
provides a step-by-step -step guide on how to lament in a biblical way without following into common ditches. And I'd highly recommend it. The second application is meditate on the patience that God has shown towards us sinners. When Moses pleaded to see God's glory, God said, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord has every right and reason to be angry with our sin, and yet he is slow to anger. He is patient with us. 1 Peter 3.9 says, Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God never asks us to be patient with someone else when we have not already received the infinite riches of his patience towards us. In 2 Kings 21, we're told about King Manasseh. He was one of the kings that did evil in the sight of God. He reigned for 55 years. There were Israelites who were born, lived, and died entirely under his reign, a wicked king. And yet, during that period, the Israelites were still called to love the Lord with all their heart and to love their neighbors with patience, regardless of the wickedness of the generation that they lived in. It is a true mercy that we have elections on a regular basis. It means that we do not live our lives under the rule of one government, good or bad. It is a kind and gracious Lord who restrains such evil in our day. And yet we must remember that the Lord is not indifferent, callous, or blind to such evil. In fact, we're told that Manasseh's actions provoked the Lord to anger. And the Lord will judge all sin and evil. None will escape him. It is all within his sight. The Lord is powerful to make his word come true. And it says in 2 Kings 21 that he can wipe them as one wipes a dish. It is easy and it can be done regularly. But God replaced evil Manasseh with his grandson, Josiah, who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But even after King Josiah turned to the Lord with all of his heart, mind, and strength, the nation of Judah was still judged and overtaken by Pharaoh, king of Egypt, because of what Manasseh had done. The time lag here, ladies, was big. He is slow to anger. And sometimes when we, like Job, want justice in the moment, in the instance, we do not see the decades and centuries of God's patience towards us as a people. His ways are not our ways. Charles Spurgeon said, Patience is the fair handmaiden and daughter of faith. We cheerfully wait when we are certain we shall not wait in vain. It is our duty and privilege 
to wait upon the Lord in service, in worship, in expectancy, in trust all the days of our lives. Our faith will be tried faith. And if it be the true kind, it will bear continued ongoing trial without yielding. We shall not grow weary of waiting upon the Lord if we remember how long and how graciously he once waited upon us. End quote. This doesn't mean that patience isn't hard. It is. Patience can require uncomfortable sacrifice and surrender. And yet as we look to him, as we look to our Lord, we can extend it to others. Third, look to God's providence in the lives of the prophets. James reminds us to look to the prophets, and he talks about Job, but there are many others in the Old Testament that we could study and become accustomed to God's ways to see how his providence works out in history. And when we study them, we are less vulnerable to the panic when life goes upside down for us because we can rest in him, knowing that he was there for them and he is here for us. We can wait patiently to see how history unfolds. In closing, I wanna share the story of B.B. Warfield. Warfield was a world-renowned theologian who taught at Princeton Seminary for almost 34 years until his death in 1921. Many people are aware of his famous book, The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible. But what most people don't know is that in 1876, at the age of 25, he married Annie Pierce Kincaid. And he took a honeymoon to Germany. And during a storm, Annie was struck by lightning and permanently paralyzed on their honeymoon. He cared for her patiently for 39 years before he laid her to rest in 1915. There was no Job-like restoration at the end of the story, only death in the arms of her savior, Jesus, and someday a new body in the resurrection. Because of Annie's extraordinary needs, Warfield almost never left his home for more than two hours at a time for 39 years. But when Warfield came to write his thoughts on Romans 8.28, this is what he wrote. The fundamental thought is the universal government of God, providence. All that comes to you is under his controlling hand. The secondary thought is the favor of God to those that love him. If he governs all, then nothing but good can befall those to whom he would do good. He will so govern all things that we shall reap only good from all that befalls us." End quote. We have the privilege as Christians of presenting patience to an impatient world. And that is the root and power of beautiful patience and the steadfastness that we saw in Job, in Warfield, and in each and every one of us. So the real lifeline effect of seeing and savoring the providence of God is the power to be patient 
and faithful through life's most inexplicable circumstances. Are you patient? Do you want to grow in patience? Let us look to the Lord. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time together. I pray that your words, your acts of providence as revealed to us in scripture would echo with us as we go throughout our week, that we would be people who grow in the patience that you have demonstrated towards us. In your loving name we pray, amen.